Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, by loving others, and by making disciples. That is who we are, that's what we do, and that's how we do it. Uh, one of the things that the elders and I like to do every month, uh, or every other month rather, is to write this family letter. It's just a little look at some of the things that are coming down the road in our church. You should find one actually on your table. Uh, what's coming down the road in our church, but then also some of the things that are happening behind the scenes in our church. Um, and then on the back of it, there should be an updated income expense report. That's just a way for us to be transparent and to have some accountability as well. Uh, so we hope all that's helpful. If you have any questions, please go ahead and ask me, Everett, Rob, any, any of the three of us, and we'll do our best to try to answer any questions for you. As we get things together today, I actually want to draw our attention though to one of the things on the front side of that letter, and that's the bottom, the bottom piece on that on that letter. Uh, every year, the elders and I get together uh, at the end of the summer for a time of really reflecting over the past year and looking forward to the year to come, and we pray very intentionally about where God is leading. Uh, thank God for what He has done, um, and one of the things that's really important to the Be Free Church, Be Free Multi-Site as a whole. Uh, is, is church planting. Now, we were planted in 2006, so we've been here in the school for 13 years. Uh, since then, B3 has planted uh, three other churches, uh, one in, in Newmarket, that one's actually no longer running, but then another one in Summers, North and Dover that are going strong. And so while church planting is something that's core to the DNA of the B3 family of churches, it's not something that's currently in the air here at the Alton campus. Um, so the elders and I, as we were talking and praying for the years to come, uh, we really feel like the Lord is calling us to start thinking and praying a little bit more intentionally about how we can plant churches in our region. Really, our conviction is, is simply this. We believe that the kingdom of God will be better served in the Lakes region uh, with two smaller churches than one bigger church. We don't think that the bigger the better, necessarily. We want healthy churches throughout our region, healthy churches that are making disciples across the state of New Hampshire. So, we don't know what that even means at this point. At, that, at this point, we're just actively thinking and praying, how might the Lord do this? When might the Lord do this? And who might the Lord lead to help make this happen? So, as you think about it, as you pray about it, please be praying for our church as we think about church planting. Uh, that He would help us be wise uh, with the timing and also the people um, and also the location. So please talk to us also if you want to hear anything else about that. Alright, we're in John chapter 15. John 15, verses 9 through 17. We're still in the upper room. It's still Passover. still the Last Supper. It's still the last chance Jesus is going to have to teach his disciples before he is killed. So if there's anything Jesus has to say to his disciples, now is the time to say it. And what I've loved over the last couple weeks is that the focus of what Jesus has been talking about is relationships. The relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, this triune, this trinity relationship, but the fact that we as people are invited to join Him in that relationship. We get to share in the life of the trinity. We saw that last week when we looked at the, the, the branches, uh, and, or the vine and the branches. It's actually a pretty simple and, and straightforward metaphor, even though the reality it paints is very complex. That Jesus is the true vine... The disciples are the branches because they draw their life from the vine. And then the father is the vine dresser. He removes dead branches, prunes, living branches. 
And so as Jesus continues on in the passage today, uh, he's going to continue working with this word that he introduced to us last week, and the word is abide. Abide is the key word in this passage. (laughs) To abide is a matter of life and death. Abide simply means to remain in close communion with Jesus by receiving his benefits and giving our obedience. It's the relationship we share with him. We remain in close communion with him by receiving his benefits and giving our obedience. And this is the way that we continue in the life of Christ, that we grow as disciples and how we produce fruit for the glory of God. So John 15, 9 through 17 builds upon this metaphor of the vine and the branches, showing us that the benefits of abiding are not just life and death, but so much more than that. So that's what we're going to see in 9 through 17. Let me read this for us. And then at the end we'll pray and we'll ask God to teach us through it. All right? John 15, 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Be free, will you bow in prayer with me? Father, we believe your words are living, are active, are sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at them today, uh, we would not only believe them, but obey them. That they would reveal you to us more clearly. And that that would change the way we view you, the way that we interact with you, Lord, and the way we obey and love you, God. I pray that we would be different people because of what these words say. And I pray, Father, today that if there's any encouragement we need, that you would give that to us. If there's any challenge we need, that you'd give that to us too. But that we would receive that challenge as a father who loves us. uh, Because that's exactly who you are. Father, thank you for the love that we don't deserve. We rejoice in it, Lord, and we we praise you for it. We give this time to you, Lord. Do whatever you want, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're starting in verse 9, 9 through 11. Let me read that for us. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So these first few verses in and of themselves already prove the point that I said in the introduction. That to abide in Jesus is so much more than just a matter of life and death. So let me explain what I mean by that. Can we put the the next slide up here on the screen? This passage gives us the relationship between God the Father, 
God the Son in us. So starting in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, next slide, so have I loved you, next slide. In other words, what this passage is saying is that the triune relationship, God Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, have been in perfect love and union since the beginning of time. They have shared in perfect, sinless, eternal, glorious love forever. But now, God decided to share that love with us. He decided to let us in on this relationship. Because as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And so it's not just the life of God that flows from the Father to the Son to us. It's also the love of God that flows from the Father to the Son to us. And verse 9 ends by encouraging us and telling us to abide in my love. Abide in this love. But how? How do we abide in the love of God? What does it mean to abide in the love of God? What does it look like practically? Well, let's look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. According to this passage, how do you abide in the love of God? obey. Next slide. To abide is to obey. To abide in the love of God is to obey the commands of God. Now, I'm a good evangelical Protestant Christian. I know that that's not the answer I I would have come up with. (laughs) If somebody asked me, what does it look like or what does it mean to abide in the love of God, I probably would have said something about belief or faith in, in Jesus and His words and His works, what He has done on the cross. But this passage, for some reason, is talking about what I do. This passage is talking about my obedience of His commands. But I think that if we're going to understand this passage, we have to understand clearly what Jesus is talking about here. Because Jesus isn't talking about salvation in this passage. When we look at this passage, he's not focusing on how to get a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's talking about how our love and works fit together for those who are already in relationship with Jesus. Really, it's a question of the chicken and the egg. Which came first here? Was it God's love that was given to us? Or our obedience that we gave to him? Did we obey God and so he gave us his love? Or did God give us his love and so we obey him? Unlike the chicken and the egg, we know the answer to this question. He loved us and so we obey. We enter the relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then we show our love for him by our obedience. In other words, our works are the result of our loving relationship with him. And already in the weeks before now, we've talked about marriage. And we've talked about how the loving union of a healthy marriage leads us to want to work for the good of the other person. How works flow out of our love for the other person. But rather than thinking about that image here, Jesus actually gives us a different image. Another picture of what it looks like for works to flow out of love or obedience to flow out of love. And that's what we see in verse 10. We read there, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I, Jesus says, have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Next slide. So if we want a picture of what love-fueled obedience looks like, we have to look no further than Jesus Christ Himself. Because the thing is, Jesus didn't earn the love of God. 
Jesus has had the love of God forever. And so his obedience is an act of response to the love that God has given to him. So even in the gospel stories, we've seen this over and over and over. At the very beginning, it's because of his love that when the father sent the son, he obeyed. He came. Because of their love, when the father told the son what works to do, he did them. We saw that in John 5 and John 8. Because of their love, when the Father told the Son what to speak, He spoke it. We saw that in John 5, John, John 12. We see that in this passage itself. Also, because of their love, Jesus was obedient to the Father to the point of death. Even death on the cross, Paul says in Philippians 2.8. Jesus' love for God is the wellspring, the source of His obedience to God. His obedience for God shows his love, and it's the exact same for us. We abide and obey because he first loved us. And this passage takes it one step further, and it tells us the result. We abide by obeying, and the result of that, verse 11 says, is that these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Next slide. The result of abiding in his life and his love is that we get to share in his joy. The joy that God has had in himself since the beginning of time is now shared with us. We get to have the joy of being in union with Jesus Christ and with God. Abiding in Christ is so much more than a matter of life and death. Because when we abide in him, we share in his life, his love, and his joy. So how do we abide? We obey. How do we abide in the love of God? Well, we keep his commandments. But that's a vague statement. Are we supposed to pick through all of John, find all of his commandments, and follow all of those commandments in order to receive his love? Well, it's true that we should follow all Jesus' commandments. But when we look at this passage itself, Jesus does have one specific commandment in mind. And we see that in the next verse. This is verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus has one commandment in mind when he's saying all this. This is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. This is the commandment by which we are meant to abide in his love and abide in his joy. Love one another as I have loved you. In other words, abide in my love by giving my love away. Abide in my love by receiving it and then passing it on. So to get a better understanding of this, let's illustrate it again, if we can put up the next slide. Just as the Father's love flows to Jesus, next slide, and then through Jesus to us, next slide, now the Father's love flows through Jesus and through us to others, or more accurately, to one another. Love one another as I have loved you. And this is a reciprocal thing. He wants us to give his love that he has given us to one another. He's talking to his disciples here. And as we do this, as we share the eternal love that we have been given with one another, we are obeying Jesus' commandment from verse 12. Next slide. And in that same time, we are sharing his joy. Next slide. We are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, 
by loving others, and by making disciples. That's what our church is all about. And really, when I was thinking about our mission statement this week, what I realized is that the main idea of this passage is embedded in that statement. We are a Christ-centered family, that it is Jesus and our belief in Jesus that, that unifies us, that binds us together. And we don't just love God and love others, but according to this passage, we love God by loving others. When we love each other, it reveals our love for God. We saw this just a couple weeks ago in John 13, 35, where we read that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They will see our love for God when they see our love for each other. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. All this is connected. We abide in God's love by obediently passing it on. So this passage tells us that we should love one another. It tells us why we should love one another to to abide in God's love. But it also tells us how we should love one another. To see that, let's take a look back one more time at verse 12. It says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. When you really stop and think about what that actually means, the depth of it, the radical nature of it will strike you. As I have loved you, not just because I have loved you, but in the same way that I have loved you. How do we love one another? Well, we should love in the same way that Jesus loved us. And what is that? He loved us on the cross. Put the next slide. Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us. The cross is the greatest act of love that this world has ever known. The next verse tells us that. In verse 13 it says, greater love has no one than this than that somebody lay down his life for his friends. What makes Jesus' love for us so great and so radical is that it is by nature a sacrificial love. A love that caused Jesus to give up his very life so that we could have life. A, God that, a love that caused Jesus to bear the punishment for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. What makes this love so radical is that Jesus decided that he would do for us what he didn't want us to need to have to do ourselves. He took our, our punishment so that we could live. Now, just a moment ago before church, I was talking to somebody about the love of God and it reminded me of a story. Five years ago, I was living in Michigan, and uh, I was driving home from church. I was, I was on my own. And the pastor had just preached a, a message where he was talking about the gospel. He was talking about the fact that Jesus died. Um, and that wasn't a new message to me. <laughs> I knew that. To my own shame, I let it become normal. Uh, as I was driving home that day, though, I was completely overwhelmed and broke down because I simply asked myself the question, why? Why did he die for me? And I don't want that to be just a rhetorical question. I really want to think about that for a minute together. Why did Jesus die for you? Why would he? Is it because we're cute? Did we do something to earn that love? Is there something about us that just makes him not help but love us? 
The thing that was so overwhelming about that question for me is that I didn't have a good answer. And the thing that still makes that question so overwhelming for me today is that I still don't have a good answer. And the best answer I can come up with is one that is even more overwhelming. is the fact that He loves me. That's the only reason why He would have ever died for me. And the fact that I can't explain it in and of itself is what makes it so wonderful. The gospel is radical. His love is radical. It doesn't make sense, and that's what makes it wonderful. He loved us not with a love that we earned, not with a love we deserve, but with a love that is ours purely by grace. Jesus suffered the worst punishment we could imagine for us. Why? Because that's what you do when you love someone. You desire their good even at the expense of your own. And this is the love that God the Father had for the Son. And this is the love that God the Son has for us. And now, this is the love that Jesus calls us to have for one another. Next slide. Jesus calls his people to imitate the love that he has shown us. He calls us to imitate the greatest act of love the world has ever known. He calls us to imitate a love that is not self-focused, but focused on the other person. A love that is not primarily for our own good, but for the good of the other. He calls us to love one another more than we even love ourselves. He calls us to love one another sacrificially with a love that will cost us. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Abide in the love of God by sacrificially loving one another. That's the message of John 15, 9 through 12. But there's a lot left here. I'm going to read through it, and then uh, we won't go into it at the same depth. But while this is quite complex, I think the message is pretty clear. So let me read this, 13 through 17. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. He continues, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Why? For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, sorry, so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So while we could spend the next 30 minutes mining the gems here, polishing them and rejoicing in them, the message of this passage is actually quite simple. First, what we see is that love is still the focus here. Love is still in the crosshairs of this passage. Right? It starts in verse 13 by talking about love to imitate Jesus' self-sacrificial love, his laying down of his life for us. And it ends in verse 17 with him saying, These things I command you so that you will love one another. Love is still the brackets. Love is still the point here. But the second thing we see here is that for those who are abiding in Jesus' love, there is a fundamental change in our relationship with Jesus Christ. There's something fundamentally different here. He no longer calls us one thing and calls us another thing. He no longer calls us slaves. He calls us friends. And this passage gives us two things that it tells us about friends. 
about what it means to be a friend of Jesus. And the first one, very simply, we see in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's kind of a strange-sounding passage, right? But really, when you get to the heart of this passage, what it's really saying is that obedience isn't what makes you a friend of Jesus. It's what marks you as a friend of Jesus. Our obedience to Jesus is what shows that we are his friends. It's what identifies us as his friends. So the first thing we see in this passage from verse 14 is that if you are abiding in the love of God, you will match the description of a friend. If you're abiding in his love, you will naturally match the description of a friend. And then the second one is that if you are abiding in the love of God, you are given the privileges of a friend. You match the description of a friend, and you are given the privileges of a friend. And that's in verse 15, very clearly. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does, does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Why? For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. He's not removing his distinction as the master here. That's not the point he's trying to get at. He's not saying this is an egalitarian relationship where we're all just buddies. The point he's getting at is that even while he is still the master, there is a different relationship going on. We are given the privileges of a friend. That while a slave is just told what to do, full stop, a servant is told what his master is thinking. He's taking into his master's confidences. He's told what the master wants, in this situation, fruit. And then he obeys his master, not out of fear, but with a full understanding of his master's heart, and in love, wanting to please the heart of his master. The master who chose him by grace, verse 16. The master who, and and then confidently praying for the master to do the work that the master wants to do. One who abides in the love of God matches the description of a friend and is given the privileges of a friend. This whole passage is only eight verses long. This is one of the shortest passages we've seen in the entire book of John. We've been taking hunks of 30 verses at a time to get through this book, and we're still only what, half, a little half over halfway through. But even just looking at these eight verses, we've seen uh, Jesus talking about abiding in his love. He's talking about sharing his joy, imitating his sacrifice, delighting in obedience, friendship with God. I mean, those are a lot of really big ideas here, right? But I think that all of these big ideas can actually be taken and be pieced together pretty clearly. So that we can get the whole message of this passage in one clear sentence, and here it is. Because you are a friend of God, abide in his love and joy by sharing his love and joy with others. Because you are a friend of God, abide in his love and joy by sharing his love and joy with one another. Because you are a friend of God, abide in his love and joy by sharing his love and joy with one another. The obedience that Jesus calls for, the obedience by which we abide in his love and share in his joy, is that we, verse 12, will love one another as he loved us, with a radical, sacrificial, self-forgetting love. That is the message of this passage. It is beautiful, and it is challenging. So let's think about the challenging nature of this for a minute. 
Because it's easy to get up here on a Sunday and say, go out there and uh, forget your own desires, forget your own wants, and love other people. It's easy to say up here today, go and love people as Jesus loved you. It's going to be a lot harder when we get the door. We know how hard it is to love people. And we know how rare it is for anyone to love us like this. So what does it really look like for you to love one another as Christ loved you? What does it really look like, very practically, for you to love one another as Christ loved us? First, let's think about outside of these, outside of the church walls, outside of the church family. We read here that we're supposed to love one another. Well, I think that we love one another outside of the church walls really in two ways. First, in a very practical way, and secondly, in a spiritual way. We love one another practically with our works, and then also spiritually by introducing them to Jesus. We might say we love one another practically by giving them a cup of water and spiritually by giving them living water. We love one another practically by being the hands and feet of Jesus to the people in your life and then spiritually by offering them eternal life. This love, we know, will cost us, however. It will cost us time, it will cost us energy, it might cost us embarrassment, and it will probably cost you hurt if you've been on this planet for any period of time. You know this. But the thing that we need to ask ourselves is, is what is our motivation? What is our motivation to press through the cost? To really love somebody and not just act lovingly towards somebody. It's not to get something in return, but rather it's love in, that by loving... We give honor and praise to Jesus Christ. We abide in his love when we obey his commands. And when we call others to join with us in our worship to him, he is honored because as souls of new saved sinners sing, it pleases the ears of our king. So what does this look like? Practically. What does it really look like for you to love the world sacrificially as Christ loved you? Maybe it's just buying groceries for a single mom. Maybe it's bringing food next month when we collect for Alton Community Services. Or maybe it's dedicating your time to volunteer at Alton uh, Community Services. Or maybe, as we've had examples of people doing in our church, it means coaching in high school. Spending time with these young kids, not because you just love the game so much, but because you love them so much that you want them to know Jesus because he loves them so much. There's infinite options here, so really stop and ask yourself, what does it really look like for you to love the world sacrificially as Christ loved us? And then what about inside the church? What about within this family? I mean, after all, the command of Jesus in this passage, when he says one another, he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to men that all know the love of Jesus. So I think that this passage might actually be more directed to our relationships inside the church than even outside the church. So what does it look like to love one another in the church as Christ loved us? Well, it looks like fellowship and relationship and sharing meals with each other, praying with and for each other, driving each other to the airport, even if it's Boston. But these are the obvious ones, right? These are the ones that we talk about every week because it's very simple to just say these things and they should be a part of our culture. But it is deeper than this, isn't it? 
There is more to it than just having a dinner together. There is a step further. Maybe it looks like asking one another good questions. Maybe it looks like having conversations with people where you actually want to know what they have to say rather than just looking for a chance to say what you want to say. Maybe it's wanting to hear their stories, not just to be polite because, because you love them. Because you actually want to know what they think about something more than you want to share what you think about something. This is something we all struggle with. To take a step further, maybe it looks like seeking forgiveness to someone you've hurt or continuing to love someone who's hurt you, whether they've sought your forgiveness or not. Maybe it looks like having hard conversations that you know you need to have with a brother or sister in Christ, not because you want to, but because you love them and respect them and want to make peace with them. You can fill in the blank. What does it look like for you? But what's clear in that all of these examples is that love will cost you. Love will cost you time. Love will cost you energy. It might even hurt. It might be embarrassing. But if we have been in the church for any period of time, we know this. But what is our motivation to press through? Again, what is our motivation to really love our brothers and sisters in Christ rather than just act lovingly towards our brothers and sisters in Christ? It's not to get something in return, but in a desire to honor, obey, and abide in the love of Jesus Christ. He is the one who gave us everything. And he is the one who calls us to imitate him in his sacrificial love. So what does it really look like for you to love one another in the church as Christ has loved us? Luckily, Jesus gave us a way as the body of Christ to remember his amazing sacrificial love for us. He gave us a meal, a sacred and symbolic meal that reminds us of his amazing work of love. And I, what I love about communion is the fact that he didn't give this to us as something that we're supposed to do on our own. He gave this to us as something that we're supposed to do together as a family, remembering and celebrating the love that we find in Jesus Christ.